Hello, good evening. How you guys doing tonight? Good, good. Okay, so Carl and Leslie were in Thailand for the last two weeks. We uh, prayed over them, prayed over them two weeks ago when they left, and uh, we sent with them uh, six hundred dollars, five hundred from the general church fund, and then one of you guys put in a check for a hundred bucks, and uh, and so we sent them to Thailand with six hundred dollars and uh, all of their skills and abilities uh, to be able to basically change the country in two weeks. So. Uh, <laughs> Good news is we were successful, and um, it's now called Praxis Land. Um, but uh, we <laughs> we got some pictures uh, uh, of, uh, of what they were doing down there and how the money was spent. And I want uh, Carl's going to kind of talk you through, and then I'm going to give you some more details at the end. So go ahead. Yeah. So uh, six hundred bucks seems like you know here it's not that much money, but we I think altogether we spent like eight hundred dollars. Um, 600 from here and 200 from, um, another church, um, up in Scottsdale called Highlands and we couldn't like spend it fast enough. We kept going and buying stuff and the dollar just goes so far. And so, um, I was just going to show you guys kind of where we were. This is the, the orphanage. They just got in like a new building. And so that is the girl's room, right? Yeah. So they, uh. They, the boys looks exactly the same. They got some bunk beds. Some of the kids will sleep on the floor. Um, if you go to the next picture, I think it's another. It shows the actual bunk. Um, this is all future stuff, like to help them. And the next one. Oh, there it goes. But the kids sleep on those mats. They don't sleep on mattresses, just plywood, um, which they don't really know much difference. But, like, that's one of the things we hope to not, like, get them, like, queen-size mattresses or anything, but, like, to get, like, mats or things that when they're sick, because they're sick a lot. Like, while we were there, a couple of them had malaria. A couple of them had bacterial infections. It's like, you know, there's bacteria everywhere. So, um, Pastor and I had said before, too, like, it would be nice to have something, like, at least to where it's, you know, when you're sick. Imagine laying on plywood. It's not, it's not great. So, that's stuff that we're, one of the, like, many things that we can help out with. And there's 130 of them. So, you can go to the next one. Um, we bought a, we were talking in, to, it, there's a communication barrier, obviously. Um, the people that we were kind of like with, um, some of the leaders, a couple of them speak really broken English, but basically we were, we're talking with them and, um, we're asking them, so what do, do any of the kids need like things for school or whatever? And, oh yeah, some of them can't really go cause they don't have books, you know? And we're like. Okay, well, how much are books? And I don't know if you could see there. One of them says like 316, 285. That's bot, which is 38 bot to the dollar. So I'm not really good at math, but that's like, what is that? Not very much. Like, yeah, not very much. So we were able to buy, um, with the money, buy the books for the kids who actually need it. And if you go to the next picture, it, it is the, it's the kids from the orphanage. Um, they go to a public school, so they take them in. So those are the kids from the orphanage who, um, we were able to buy the books for. And so it's a whole set for like all their classes. There's science, math, all that stuff. So that's them. And if you go to the next one, um, we bought that guitar. Their guitar was like, they do worship every morning and every night. And it's amazing. Well, we'll be showing a video in like a couple of weeks of like worship and different stuff that went on. And it's unbelievable. These kids, I've really have never seen any worship like this before. I mean, they just cry out they're dancing throwing up their hands you just they really love god that's their that's their only hope and so 
um, their guitar was like when you'd strum it, you couldn't really. Well, granted, you can't really hear it anyway because like the kids sing so loud, but it didn't really work. And so we were buy, able to buy a new one for fifty dollars. That was fifty bucks that guitar. And uh, um, the kid on the right's holding school clothes. In that last picture, you notice they have white shirt and khaki shorts. We were able to. Some of the kids didn't have any, so they couldn't like go because they didn't have any. So the shirt was what fifty cents, and the pants were like three dollars. So we were able to buy them. And then the other kid, that's a pair of underwear, because especially the boys, they don't really, uh, we don't have a lot of pictures with the, showing the actual boys' clothes, but they don't, they're not really, like, cleanly, because they don't really care, you know, clean. Cleanly? Is that not a word? (laughs) Yeah. So grooming and stuff isn't really, it's not really, you know, they don't really care. So they come here, play in these fields. That's actually... That's around the hostel, so they come, they come and they they play in the dirt and stuff. And so some of them don't wear underwear. If they do, they like wear it for like literally weeks. And so we got them that and some 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 clothes. Um, you can go to the next picture. And that's the school clothes. And some of the you could see the underwear. The boys we got like I don't know what it was like transformers on them or something. They were really into it. <laughs> and so that's Pastor Winai's wife. Um, they they run the place. And so the kids would walk in, she would just look at them, and then she'd give them clothes that she thought would fit them. So you can go to the, the next one. And that's all the kids with um, a bunch of the stuff that we were able to get with the money. There's a, they play this game, it's unbelievable. It's called like Tikrit or something like that, which I know is like a city in Iraq, right? Tikrit. Yeah. It's a game too. And it's volleyball, soccer mixed. And they, they, uh, they have a volleyball net, but, and they use this little, like, um, what is that stuff? It's not rope, but twine. A twine ball. And they, like, kick it. And they, three times, and they were doing, like, these kids were doing backflips, no joke. Like, backflip, kick the ball over. And so they had this net that was all grimy and falling apart. So we were able to buy them a new one for, like, I don't know, five bucks or something. And, uh. There's a guitar, there's like some a soccer ball somewhere in there, and all kinds of other stuff, food, medicine, all that stuff. It was like, we kept going to the city, and it, it just, you know, it was like the, the fish and bread, and like feeding the 5,000, it like would not end. Like it just kept kept going. You can go to the next picture, and I think there, some of the kids are holding some of the clothes, and those are just kids who got some clothes and got different stuff, and you can go to the next one. Oh, and the last thing, this is Noah. That's the guy who, who speaks, like, the best English, which is, I wish we recorded it because it's terrible. <laughs> um, no, he's not that bad. We could talk to him. But he had he has glasses. He wears glasses, but they're, like, broken. Like, And so when I'd look at it, he's, he'd have headaches all the time. He's like, I don't understand. And you look at his glasses, like, this size normal. It's, like, close, you know, like this close. And this size like, this far away. It's, like, his glasses are totally tweaked. And and so we're like, well, Noah, let's get you some glasses. So we were able to take with the money and buy him a pair of, like, really nice glasses. Took him in, and he, he was actually telling us they were, like, 3,000 baht, which was, like, was like 100 bucks or something. I don't know. Something like that. A little over $100 for the glasses, everything. And he was telling us, this is the – I've never had anything this expensive on my body in my life. He's like, this is kind of weird. So it's definitely different. Whole other culture. So that was just some. Of the, we just wanted to show some of the stuff with um, the giving that the church gave. That was the, those were the things that 
were able to get. Yeah, those are, those aren't the glasses. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to explain that. Yeah, okay, sorry. Yeah, they're another the test. I just thought it was a funny picture. Yeah, so um, those it, it's, it's kind of funny that the guy that says cleanly is making fun of other people's English. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Uh, we, this is the second time Carl's been to, uh, Thailand. It's the first time Leslie's been there. We have, uh, some friends in San Diego that we're involved with that have sent a couple groups there. So, uh, we going forward are going to be super involved with all the stuff that's going to be going on in Thailand. And, you know, like Carl was saying, a, a dollar there is, is a lot of money. It goes a long way. So, uh, the little amount, I mean, like Carl said, 600 bucks. I mean, the 500 that we gave as a church, we were just kind of wanting to say, Pastor and I, this is this is kind of just a almost like a good faith thing. Like, hey, we're in. Uh, we just want to bless you with this and see where it can go. And uh, but the the future holds a lot more. And, and so I want to ask you, kind of what what do you see? What did you come out of that with a vision for your involvement with them? We uh, we want to we we would like to connect with them. Like pretty much do it full time. We've we've kind of talked about it before, but that's something that Leslie and I want to do in the future. And that's uh um. It's basically meeting, connecting the global church in a sense. Like they have a lot of needs and we have a lot of resources. So it's, it's just connecting them, not in like a huge organization. You know, a lot of times like when the, an organization gets so big, it's like, oh, where did my money go? What happened? It, it's just basically going in and, and seeing the, like just at the orphanage alone, like with the, um, with schooling, with like those mats on the beds, like starting from, you know, starting at point A and just working our way up, how we can take the things that they need and which where they're at, it's such an underdeveloped country. It's not like we're going to fulfill the needs and be like, okay, you're, you're good to go, you know? So it's, it's just staying connected with them. And like Justin and I talked about, like as a church being involved, them being, it, it would be cool. Cause they're considered, they're a church, you know, 130 kids worshiping, you know, together hearing from the Lord. So connecting us with them. And so that's, that's kind of what's on our heart. And one of the things that Carl told me when he came back was that there's a plot of land uh, just maybe a quarter of a mile down the road from where the orphanage is that's up for sale. And I think it's it's like 100 square miles and it's like $9 or something like that. So um, I feel like it's a good investment uh, at this point. Uh, no, but it's it's four or five acres and it, literally the land would cost about three grand. Um, so to, to buy this land, it's close enough to the orphanage where we could set it up as kind of a uh, missionary center where uh, when Carl and Leslie go out there and when uh, we bring groups out there and, and our uh, the organization San Diego that we're friends with goes out there, that they'll have a place uh, to live that, that is outside the orphanage. Because as Carl was saying, uh, the orphanage is very dirty and, and you got like I, about a 100% chance you're going to get sick if you go there. So it provides the American missionaries a place to go and be, be close enough to be able to minister and really help out at the orphanage, but also not to, to guarantee sickness, to have some, some sort of separation there. So uh, we're working down those lines and, and a lot of stuff in the future. But I just wanted you guys to see uh, where your money went very tangibly. I mean, we're buying clothes, underwear, books for school, uh, and sports equipment. That's pretty much the all you need in life. Um, um, oh, and food, I guess. Uh, but mostly just sports equipment. And um, so, I mean, you, this, is, this is big, and this is just a first step, but I want you guys to see that even a little bit of money goes a long ways in these people's lives. So um, they, I think they're planning tentatively to go back October, November, something like that. 
um, will be the follow-up trip. And so we'll have a lot more information by then and, and a more uh, specified plan of attack and what we're going to do and what exactly is our role going to be in that. So anyway, welcome back. Okay, so tonight we are starting Ruth, and you guys should have gotten uh, your intro booklet to Ruth. Um, for those of you who are new, I write uh, an introduction um, for every book of the Bible we go through. We just go through books of the Bible straight through. We just finished First Timothy two weeks ago. We did uh, a one-week brief thing on the Da Vinci Code, and then we're jumping right into Ruth. Um, so uh, I, I provide that for you guys so that I don't have to talk about a lot of historical uh, context and, and that kind of stuff. And I'm just going to hit it real light tonight. Um, and if you are interested in more context uh, for what's going on and what are some major themes and that kind of thing, uh, go ahead and check that out. Um, we're going to do Ruth in two weeks. Uh, that's It's a short book. It's only four chapters long, so we'll be doing it this week and next week. And then we'll, uh, we'll be in Philippians after that. So if you guys want to open to Ruth, it's right after Judges in the Old Testament. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. So I did something uh, this week that I thought I would never do. Ever. Like, never. I've, I've, I think I've made vows to God that I would never do this. Um, I got a cat. And, um, yeah. Um, it, uh, it, 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 we couldn't come up with a name. We were struggling with a name. We, my wife and I are strange uh, when it comes to stuff like this. We, so we wanted it to have a weird name. Uh, and uh, so we, we, she brought it home in this box, like a, not a box, like, like an animal carrier, like fairly humane. And um, uh, it, had, it had the owner's name on it. The owner's name was Shailene Wilson. And so we were like, well, that sounds like a nice name for a cat, Shailene Wilson. Um, but so we kind of were trying that for a while, and it just wasn't working. We weren't good with it. It just didn't roll off the ch- tongue. Emily wanted Shailene J. Wilson. Uh, I'm not sure what the J was for. Probably Jesus. Um, but it just, it just wasn't flowing, you know. And so I, I was just calling it cat because it's a cat. And, uh, uh, and, and my brother wanted to name it dog, but I, it just was too confusing for me, really. Um, and so I called it cat. And then what, I, I have this weird thing about I would give people nicknames. And Emily's, uh, and we've been together for, I don't know, how long have we been together? Total? Six years or something like that? Two? Something? Um, quite a while. And, uh, uh, and, and I've given her 14 different nicknames. And, uh, so I was calling, we were calling it cat. And then I just one time called it Catherine. And I was like, oh, that's kind of nice. I like human names for cat, for animals. It's kind of funny. And so it's Catherine J. Wilson. Uh, we kind of, uh, got together on that, but it's, it's super cute. And at first it was really like, wouldn't even be in the same. It was hiding under stuff and freaking out. And, and, uh, in four days it's gone to where I, I got up this morning and it was waiting at the door for me and then chasing my feet around. And so, um, Emily made me admit today that I like it. And so <laughs> I did, I do like it. Okay. Uh, that behind us now, Ruth one. Uh, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, a couple quick, quick 
uh, contextual kind of things there just for some background. The only thing I really want to hit is that the Moabites were pretty consistent enemies of the Israelites. Okay, so you have this Israelite family, uh, Limelech and his, his wife and their two sons. There's a famine in Judah, in Israel. Judah is the southern half of Israel. They're there in Judah, and it's famine. They can't make ends meet, and they're struggling to eat, struggling to provide. And so they go to Moab to live, all right? This is, this is their, at times, arch enemy here, okay? Uh, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you will know that... Um, the Jews were very, very nationalistic, and I say that as a nice way of saying racist. I mean, the Jews were very, very racist. You see that throughout their lives, hating, hating other types of people because they're just other types of people. Okay? So for, the, for these Jews to then go to Moab was, was a bit of a, a risk on their part, and it gets even worse down the road. So I want to I want to highlight this now because it'll come up throughout the story, uh, and ultimately Ruth is just a love story. Okay, it's a love story between a girl named Ruth and a guy named Boaz, uh, and uh, which is a great name. Uh, should name the cat Boaz. Um, uh, and and it's a love story that's got a lot of a lot of themes in it, a lot going on. It's a beautiful story. Um, the Old Testament is great. And that's why we go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, because I don't think we get enough Old Testament. This is one of those beautiful stories that points us directly to Christ. I mean, there is direct metaphor of Christ in Ruth. This is thousands of years before Christ was even born. So I just want to give you that little bit of context. Verse 3. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malin and Kilian also died. The two sons died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. One of the themes that we're going to see throughout this story is Naomi's uh, trust in a sovereign God. Okay, We've seen already twice now that the writer has attributed Naomi to saying that God brought a famine in the land and now that God had smiled upon his people and brought food back to the land, brought uh, brought water back, brought all the necessities so that they can now move back. This is going to be a consistent theme that no matter what, Naomi goes through some tough times. Her daughters go through some tough times. Uh, there's, you know, they deal with all kinds of stuff, but throughout it, even at their lowest point, Naomi has this really firmly held belief in the sovereignty and providence of God. Okay, And I think this is a lesson that we can all learn. A lot of times when, when things are going bad in our lives, we concentrate on I- exactly what's going on and, and why is God doing this to us and, and woe is me. And, and even though we see later on that Naomi, in fact, asks people to call her a different name because Naomi means pleasant and she says, call me Mara because Mara means bitter. And she's kind of having a little pity party. Uh, throughout it, she believes heavily in God's providence. That God is in control. No matter what's going on, whether good or bad, God is in control. And I just want to, it's not one of our major themes, but I want to hit that so that as we come, as we see it throughout the story that you guys recognize that, that despite all that goes on, Naomi has this deeply rooted faith in God's providence and sovereignty. Verse 8, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. 
May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the homes of another husband. Two things here. First of all, uh, Naomi is, is encouraging her daughters to go back and find new husbands. Okay, and we're going to see, and she mentions this a couple times. Later on, she says, what are you going to do? Wait for me to have more kids and wait for them to grow up so that you can have a husband. And we may read this as 21st century Americans and go, well, why do they need husbands? They could just get a job. They could just go take care of themselves. Why? I don't need a man. I don't need a man to give me what I need. And, rather, you know, uh, and we start snapping and stuff, and it's weird. But... Um, uh, it, it's, this isn't 21st century America. This is this is way long ago in a totally different place where if you were a woman and you were divorced or if you were a woman and you were a widow or if you were a woman and you just didn't have a man yet, you were in trouble. You're in trouble. Because uh, in this patriarchal society, guys made the money, guys provided protection, guys provided everything that a woman would need, in, uh, including status, in that community and in that culture. So when their husbands died, they literally immediately are going, okay, I need a new husband. I have to. There's no time for grieving because I don't have an income. I don't have anyone to, to pay for food or pay for a place to live or even to respect me because I am no longer married. Okay? So don't read this as 21st century Americans. See the cultural differences here. This is not an issue of all women need husbands. That's not the point here. The point here is back in the day, all women needed husbands to survive. Okay, so don't get hung up on stuff like that. Second thing I want to see in this, I want you to see is Naomi says, may the Lord show kindness to you. And this is one of our two major themes in the book of Ruth is this, this issue of kindness. And it's uh, in the Hebrew, the word is the hesed. And it is, actually should be translated literally God's loving kindness. Okay, and this comes up time and time and time again throughout this story. And it's tied directly into Naomi's uh, belief in a sovereign God that over and over that God shows his loving kindness for aliens and strangers and poor. Okay, and we're going to see that throughout this story. This, this, this has said, God's loving kindness being shown to people that, that are completely ordinary people. They're not rich, they're not powerful, they're not necessarily good-looking, they're not, they're not popular, they're not anybody. In fact, they're foreigners who are poor and in need of help. And God, time and time again, shows them his unabashed loving kindness throughout this. Okay? Let's get to the good part. Then uh, she kissed them and wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Again, we see that God's providence, God's hand uh, against Naomi. Verse 14. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And this next line of Ruth might be the most beautiful part of Scripture in, in, in all of Scripture. It may be the coolest thing I've ever read in Scripture. Uh, one of my best friends used this uh, in his wedding. In fact, in the underside of his wedding band, he has this, this verse uh, engraved in it. It's just beautiful. Uh, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So that's just beautiful. That's beautiful. I mean, it, Na- Ruth is telling Naomi, she goes, I'm not leaving, period. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. She's saying, you and I are together in this thing. We can pull this out of context and say, that's how you should be with God. And that, it is, ultimately. This is a statement of faith on Ruth's behalf, that she understands and knows the character of her mother-in-law. And I mean, this is rare for, for a daughter-in-law to be de- so devoted to her mother-in-law. You know, let's face it, those relationships aren't that great usually, right? Although my mom and, and my wife have a wonderful relationship, um, right? Um, so uh, th- it's, just, it's just a beautiful passage. It's just a beautiful statement of faith and love and understanding. Uh, and I just wanted to focus on it for a second. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is an interesting thing. And I want to park on it just for a second. How many of you know people who have said, uh, if God is so great and God is so good, why does he allow uh, such terrible things to happen? Right? We, we, we've heard this. That, that God, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why is all the pain and suffering in this earth that I, I just can't get on board with God because of all this stuff that's going on? That's essentially, Naomi saying, is painting this picture of, of hardship and bitterness and, and, and pain. She's lost her husband and her two sons and one of her daughters-in-law. She, he, she says, I left full and I've come back empty at the hand of God. That God has sent me away full and brought me back empty. I have a question for you. If you're thinking that, if you're thinking, man, I cannot get on board with God because of all the junk that is going on in the world today. All the, all the hatred and the racism and the, and the murder and the war and the strife. And I just, I cannot follow a God that allows that to happen. A couple weeks ago, I, I, I mentioned that so much of what we do, so much of what we say makes theological statements about God. Right? Many, most of us wouldn't consider ourselves to be theologians or to think particularly theologically. But I, I, what I said a couple of weeks ago, and I want to restate it now, is that many of the decisions you make throughout your day, without even thinking, and this being one of them, is a very theological statement. Because you're saying essentially this. One, if you are blaming God for the evil and destruction and pain in this world, First of all, what you're saying is that God is big enough and powerful enough and sovereign enough to be held responsible for them. Right? If you are blaming God for pain and destruction and and hatred and racism and war, then you are saying that God is big enough and powerful enough and strong enough to be blamed for those things. 
to have an effect on those things. So you're saying something about the power of God. Now, second of all, the assumption there is, if you're saying that God is to be blamed for these things, not only is he big enough to control these things and powerful enough to control these things, but now on the flip side of that, you are expecting God to only allow good in this world. That all pain and all hardship should be eliminated if God were indeed God. What you're saying there is that humans should not be allowed to make whatever choices humans want to make. You're essentially saying, by blaming God for that evil and saying, I cannot believe in a God that allows that evil, you're saying, I don't want humans to have freedom. Because humans, by nature, are selfish, self-centered, hating people. They do these things. Even the purest of people in this world will ultimately choose themselves over us, over others, over the people around them. By making these statements, you are admitting that God is big enough to be held accountable for these things, and you are also saying that you would prefer it for us not to have any freedom, for us not to be able to choose what we want to choose. That God, in, 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 in that moment when someone might choose to hit someone or to shoot someone or to steal from someone, what you are saying is that God should intervene in that moment and not allow that person to have freedom. And what do we become? robots we become drones we become these smiley happy people that just walk around and anytime we even think even the thought begins to occur to do something evil god immediately intervenes and corrects it and makes it stop and we are back to being just good smiley happy robots ultimately no one wants this no one i mean we're americans right we're, we're the land of the free and the home of the braves. That, that, that's, that's, our, that's, that's like what our, our country was founded on, is freedom. And by blaming God for these things, you were saying, I don't want anybody to have freedom. I want them to have the freedom to do good and that's it. No one can make a bad choice. No one can be evil. God should at that moment intervene and stop it. So we become robots. Is that ultimately what we want? Or do we just blame God for those things and, and, and use evil in the world as yet another excuse to not follow God? Is it? Is it just an excuse we use? Well, I, I can't be a Christian because God you know, allows all that evil. Is that really why? So, so you would be a Christian if, we, if God just made us all robots. Then you'd be like, well, of course you would, right? Because you have to choose because you can only choose good. Is that, is that really what we mean? Is that really what we're saying? Or is it just another excuse? Because you are already saying that God is big enough, that God is sovereign enough, God is strong enough, and yet you don't believe in him. We paint pictures with decisions we make. We paint pictures about God. We make theological statements about God with little decisions that we make like that. And Naomi here in this story is making a theological statement about God. She's saying, God has brought hardship in my life. 
She's saying that God is strong enough to do it. God is sovereign enough to do it. God is big enough to do it. And he has done it. Regardless of whether she's right or wrong, she is making a statement of the sovereignty of God. That God's in control. That God brought famine in the land, took her family out, put them in Moab. Then later on, after 10 years, brought brought enough food back to the land so they could come back. But he, in the meantime, her husband died and her sons died. And this was all by the hand of God. And so in the midst of her little pity party where she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because I'm all bitter. And she, you know, you just want to smack her. But she's making some good theological statements. So she's saying, God is sovereign. God's in control. God does this. She says, whether I like it or don't like it, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. She says, God's in control, not me. Not me. So I can't just be pro-God when the good stuff's going on. I have to be pro-God no matter what's going on because underneath it all, as a foundation of belief, we believe in a God who's sovereign and we believe in a God who's good. We believe in a God who loves us. Those two things have to be foundational to our faith. So that we go through the ups and the downs of life. We can come back and in spite of our feelings, I mean, she, she has very distinct feelings of bitterness and, 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 and depression going on right here. There's a, a pastor out in Gilbert. His name's Tom Schrader. He's a good man. He always says, what you think trumps what you feel. What you think trumps what you feel. That's not to say that feelings don't matter. It's not to, not to say that we sh- can never be bitter, that we can never be upset, that we can never be depressed. But in the end, if we have a foundational understanding of God's sovereignty and God's love, what we feel is always trumped by what we think. That we know in spite of the hardship, in spite of the fact that she just lost her husband and her two sons, she says, I'm bitter But, I believe in a sovereign God. I believe in a sovereign God. We have to be there. We have to be in that place. This is not to say we cannot have feelings and we should not feel deeply and we should not feel lost. That's not what it's saying at all. But at our depths, at our core, in the midst of loss, in the midst of bitterness, that we have an understanding that we serve a sovereign and loving God. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, her husband, a man of standing, a man of honor. This is a man of, of, of honor in the, in the culture, uh, a man of standing in the culture, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadfastly from morning, excuse me, steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. 
Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Now here's what's going on here. Uh, Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem. This is Naomi's hometown. Ruth, again, is a foreigner. She's an alien in this land. She has no rights, no standing, no place in Bethlehem. Okay. Now, there is uh, part of the law of Moses, part of the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19, says that when, when a, a farmer is harvesting his crop, that he has a couple rules when he's harvesting his crop. It seems we read through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's just like drudgery, right? It's just law after law after law. There's over 600 laws in the Old Testament of what the Israelites could do and not do. And I know a lot of us, and and I have at times, before I, I feel like I better understood them, have looked at that and gone, man, what a bunch of legalists. What a bunch of dummies. Just law after law and restriction and requirement after requirement. It's just like, gosh, take a deep breath and just chill out, God, right? 600 commandments? I mean, we stop at 50? That seems like a lot, right? 600 is a real lot. Then we look at these in Leviticus 19. We look at them closer, and this is what Leviticus 19 says. Leviticus 19.10, I believe, says that when a farmer is going to harvest his crop, he has some restrictions. One, he can't harvest it all the way to the edges. Okay, Just he has to leave a couple feet on the edges uh, that go unharvested. And when he goes through and harvests them, uh, he, he can't go through twice. He, him and his harvesters go through and they, they put, pull the corn or pick the blueberries or whatever they're harvesting at that time. They go through and whatever they leave behind, they can't come through closer and, and take more. Okay, And that which is left over is given to those who are aliens and strangers in the land and poor. So in the midst of those 600 different commandments that God has given his people, we see that God has a real heart and care for the poor and the marginalized. Okay, Here's what the law doesn't say. Go over your land, do it thoroughly, take all that you can, and then set aside a certain percentage and just give it to the poor people. It's not what he says. He says, go through the land, leave some on the edges, leave some on the ground. When you go through, take yours and go, and then allow the poor and the, and the alien and the strangers to come in behind you and do the work, pull the, pull the berries off, pull the corn off, pull the grain off, whatever it is, and work for themselves, but give them that opportunity. Okay, so when Ruth and, and Naomi come back to Bethlehem, Ruth says, hey, I'm going to go take advantage of this law that God has given to his people, and I'm going to go and work. I'm going to work my tail off. In fact, when Boaz shows up and he asks his, his foreman, basically, what, you know, who's that girl? And he doesn't say who is she, he says whose is she? Because typically the, the young ladies that were doing this harvesting were slave girls or servant girls of, of greater richer masters okay so he says whose whose girl is this and the and the foreman says well this is naomi's friend that came back she's a moabitess and she's been working her tail off he says she only stopped one time for just a little bit to rest in the shelter okay this is hot this is the middle east in like the spring it's hot it's like arizona only hot er 
Uh, I mean, like, without air conditioning, right? This is, this is not good. Um, and, and so she's hanging out. She's working hard. She's working off. And what God has done uh, providentially, uh, hundreds of years before, has said, I'm going to set in place a law so that those people, my, my people, the Israelites, can will and can care for aliens and strangers in the land and the poor. This is something that, that a lot of times we... We lose. We lose. We either, uh, in America, we have certain systems that, that go in and, and that, that, uh, that we give our money to through taxes that take care of the poor and, and, and provide for the poor. And it's just, we, we, we give to the government, the government divvies it out how they sit, see fit. And we, you know, we walk down Mill Avenue and we see poor people, we see people who are in need uh, by whatever circumstances. And they ask us for money and sometimes we give it and sometimes we don't. And we've got this kind of like, how do we deal with the poor? Well, God has set, set up for us some pretty good boundaries uh, for how to deal with the poor and, and, and strangers, aliens and strangers in lands. I mean, gosh, like this immigration thing is one of the biggest things going on in the country right now. And we, sh- we can very quickly look at Scripture and say, hey, here's a biblical perspective on how we deal with these kind of issues. Give them opportunities to work. God says, don't just give them stuff, but provide for them an opportunity to work and to, and, and to pay their way and to do their job and, so they can live and so they can be blessed and so they can give glory to God, as Ruth will do in just a minute, give glory to God for his provision in their lives. Okay, They weren't just handed something, but they were given an opportunity to get sweaty and to get down on hands and knees and pull up grain and p- pick berries and whatever, the he- whatever else that they are given an opportunity to do. And God says, here you go. Here is your opportunity. And he give it to him. Hand you an opportunity to work hard to my glory so that I get the credit for providing this for you. Okay, This is a, this is a great picture of what this could look like and what this should look like in the church. That the church should work uh, in the community, in the culture, to provide these opportunities for the poor and provide opportunities for immigrants to be able to work and thrive and live in this country. Okay? God set it up here. This is another big issue here. Uh, at least it would have been for, for the Israelites when they get this story. That Ruth was what? She was a foreigner. And she was not only a foreigner, but she was from a place of people that, that the Israelites didn't like. And they were at war with most of the time. And so here's this girl coming in from Moab who nobody knows. She's from, you know, she's an enemy basically. But God has sovereignly, by grace, given her an opportunity to thrive and live in that place. Okay? And so now we see where uh, Boaz knows that law and actually takes it a step further. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz says, listen, I, I know your reputation. You've got a good reputation. I heard about what you did for Naomi. I heard that you've traveled all this way and that you stuck by her side when you could have easily abandoned her. I've heard about you. You're good. You're working hard. You've taken these opportunities. You've been loyal and hard work. This is great. And I, I was reading that this week and thinking, man, this is, this is the picture of the Proverbs 31 woman. 
This is, this is the, you know, the holy grail of women that, that we have biblically. So turn there real quick. Proverbs 31, it's the last chapter in Proverbs. Solomon gives us a, a, a picture of what, you know, an ideal for a, a wife would be. 31.10 is where it starts. Solomon says, A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Solomon would know he had 700 wives. Um, he had a lot to pick from. Uh, verse 11, Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and, and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she, makes a, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps, grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do, women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned and let her works bring praise at the city gate. That is the picture of a woman that every man should desire and that every woman should desire to be. Someone that takes care of herself and can work hard and is praised by her husband, takes care of her family, that she is uh, valued, that her husband loves her, that he sees nothing wrong with her, that whether it's blinded by love or what else, he looks at her as this perfect, ideal, blameless woman. I just want to concentrate quickly on verse 25. It says, She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. It's a beautiful picture of, of an ideal, of an ideal that we should all be striving for. And I really feel like Ruth hits that ideal. We, she's working hard. She's taking, taking care of her family. She's stood loyally by her mother-in-law. She's traveled across to a foreign land, to a place that is, is, is not her own and is, is bad to her. I mean, this is her enemy. For Her entire life has been her enemy. And Boaz says, I know your reputation. I know who you are. And that's why I'm blessing you here. Ruth says, I don't deserve this. And Boaz says, I know. I'm showing you grace because I know your reputation. I know who you are. And it's good and it's blessed. Verse 13. She says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. 
When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah, which is about four gallons uh, of, of barley. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw, saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought, uh, brought out and gave her what she had left over from what, after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabites said, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of, the, of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So we have this picture. This is the first half of a, of, of a beautiful story. And in this story, we see this, this, theme, this theme of the hesed, God's loving kindness, God's providence, God's sovereignty in the life of a woman who is a foreigner, who was poor, who held no standing. And in spite of all that, in spite of race, in spite of social, social norms, in spite of uh, financial socioeconomic status, God has singled her out. And we'll see at the end of this book, not only has he singled her out just to bless her and provide for her now, but that she was a part of his ultimate plan uh, for redemption. This is beautiful. This is a beautiful picture of God caring for those who are poor, those who are needy, those who are marginalized. And in fact, going to such great lengths to hundreds of years beforehand, telling his people, giving them a commandment to provide for people like her. Some have even gone the step, some theologians have gone in the next step to say that God has a preferential option for the poor. That God shows preferential treatment. That God actually prefers those who have been marginalized. Because they can see so clearly God's provision in their lives. And I, I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if God has a preferential option for the poor. But I do know this. That sometimes when we uh, are stable, when we have money, when we have friends, when we have good stuff going on in our lives, we are less likely to see the hand of God. We are. We see all the good in our lives. We see the blessing and the provision. And we just kind of coast. That Naomi and, and her husband and her two sons were, were doing fine in, in a foreign land. They were doing good. And all of a sudden... Hardship hurt. She loses her, her husband. She loses her sons. And all of a sudden she sees the hand of God again. She calls out to God and says, provide for me. Provide for your family. She says, may the Lord provide for you. And she's sending off her, her daughters-in-law. 
that throughout this whole story that she is pointed to God's provision, God's sovereignty, and time and time and time again has asked for and pointed out God's hesed, his loving kindness and provision in her life. See, for, the, for us, this takes kind of two roads. On, on the one hand, some of us are in a position like Naomi. We've gone through hardship. We've lost loved ones in our lives. We're going through financial trouble. Maybe we're, we've moved here from out of town and we don't know anybody and we feel marginalized and we feel like we're a foreigner in a strange land. God's got his hand on you. We see from this story that God had his hand on two very, very unlikely women. And he had in mind great things for very normal, average people. The story tells us that God, if nothing else, does not have a preferential option for the rich or for the good-looking or for the wealthy or for the social elite. God loves everybody equally. And that everyone, despite, in spite of race, socioeconomic status, whatever, has equal opportunity in the eyes of God. That God loves them desperately and has his hand of providence upon you at all times. That through the good times and the bad, God is there and he is sovereign. He's in charge. He's big. He's strong. We can trust him. And then on the other hand, we look at this story and go, what is our role as Christians and what is our role as the church in the lives of the poor, in the lives of the marginalized, in, in the lives of the outcasts? I, mean, I, I think it's perfect that we saw a, a slideshow of pictures from people who... These, these kids, there's 130 some odd kids in this place and they sleep on plywood and they think it's normal. I mean, we would, we would go into their lives. If we traded places with them, we would be shocked at the lives they live. Drinking dirty water, eating spoiled food, living on plywood, walking around bare feet, tattered clothes. I mean, we buy these kids 50 cent pair of underwear and they're doing backflips. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So we as a church and as individual Christians have to ask ourselves in light of a story like this, what is our responsibility to the poor all around us? What's our responsibility? What is our role in the lives of the poor and the marginalized here in Tempe? Those are questions that we as a church need to start answering and you as individuals dealing with the people that are hurting and lost in your own lives need to answer. Because it's just, it, this issue of being poor doesn't necessarily have anything to do with money. Some people lose all their money. Some people lose their family. Some people lose their parents. Some people lose a child. Some people lose whatever. We all go through times of loss. And it is so often in those times, we, we have a choice and people tend to go one way or the other when hardship hits their lives. They tend to either turn and blame God and reject God and say, God, in spite of the fact that by saying this, I think you're big enough to be held responsible for the pain and the hardship in my life. And ultimately, even though I know I'm just saying that I want you to intervene anytime anything bad happens, I am blaming you for this hardship. 
Or we see people turn to God in hardship. We see them turn to God and say, God, I need you. I need you in my life. I've got to have you. I've been turning away from you. When times were good, I was coasting. And now times are hard, and I need you back again. The question is, as Christians, when hardship comes, what path do we choose? Do we believe in a sovereign God who loves us? Or are we quick to blame and quick to to turn inward to ourselves and say, call me bitter because God's wrath is upon me? This is a beautiful story. In spite of the fact that it was written four or 5,000 years ago, it is so vital for us today. And next week is going to be even better as we see Boaz as a type of Christ who redeems Ruth and brings her back in an amazing way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. That you have it within your capacity to do us good at any time. God, we trust in your strength. Lord, we trust in your love. We know that you have our best in mind. In spite of the immediate circumstances that we see in front of us, in spite of whatever junk is going on in our lives, Lord, we know that you love us. We know that you care about us. And ultimately, God, we know that you want our best. You have our best in mind. God, help us in times of need to turn to you and, 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 and express our feelings and, and, and feel with everything we feel. But Lord, remember, help us to remember that what we think trumps what we feel. That we know in our heads that you are sovereign and that you are good. And in spite of what we feel, we know those things to be true. That that is at our foundation. God, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to take a couple minutes. Um, just just silent. Uh, time to reflect. We don't, we don't really get a whole lot of silence in our lives. Just downtime. So uh, take a minute to reflect. And then we got community in the back. Place to pray in the back. Offering in the back. Offering is part of our worship. And uh, we'll sing a couple more songs. So.